0: You're listening to Campus Review Radio.
1: This is Carl Treacher and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of Headex, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. <music>
0: Welcome to Headaches. In this episode we're going to have a very interesting conversation with Marcia Devlin. This is a really important conversation. I can't get over how this interview with Marcia and reading her book has really opened my eyes into things that I just hadn't been aware of before. The extent of sexism in Australian universities and I hope all men will read this book and I hope all of those that listen to this episode will help them change some of their thinking like it has me.
1: Carl, how's um, how's it going with you? Can I just start by saying I think it's brilliant that we're talking about this. I think it's brilliant that the industry and the sector is starting to get an understanding of the actual issues at hand and that Marsh is driving this important cause really, really well. I haven't read the book yet. It's on the top of my reading list and I can't wait to do that. But to answer your question, really busy actually, Martin. The the A lot of sectors that we work with are in full flight trying to understand work from home, hybrid culture what all that means. And so the sort of the, the acute period of COVID is now over and the dust has settled. And now it's about how do we um, ensure that organisations are performing and not sort of setting themselves up for long-term pain just by um, making concessions or, or changing the way people work.
0: Gosh, that's, um, that's a little bit different from where all of our universities are at the moment. I think they're sort of trying to recover from the dust settling on the budget from a couple of weeks ago, which... I'm sure you picked up, and many will have done, had nothing in it for universities, which was a great disappointment. I think they, um, they probably have really come to to accept and, and realise, surely they must do by now, that they're, they're on their own. I mean, the, the gestures in the, br- in the budget, as they might be seen towards aged care after a Royal Commission, and was it described as a women's budget by some? Um, although I'm not sure it was fully delivering what either of those groups were, were, were hoping for. There was nothing in it at all for universities, and I think the the full realisation that they're on their own is really sinking in now.
1: No doubt, and I think uh, our guest today has something to say about that.
0: Oh, well, She certainly does, and um, I think she also hints at um, the broader issues, and we'll probably get into listening to her soon, and also then exploring afterwards the broader issues of the the value that all organisations and all sectors can have by having diversity driving some of their leadership, their governance, and their their operations and productivity and I think these are really important issues more broadly and the issues of sexism that we'll, we'll dive into in a minute are very important because of the very conservative culture that many of our universities have growing out of their their origins it's it's ironic really that they're such global players focusing on innovation but they're still on, like on overcoming some really quite non-diverse practices um, and sometimes it takes some really clear calls for change and And bold moves to start any movement that are going to be doing anything about that that's probably something you had some experience with with the the banks and the royal commission carl isn't it was there a in any way a similar journey of change there i think there's some similarities
1: the sector reputation is one you know the reputation of the sector in in banking was was very very poor for a variety of reasons around misconduct and Collusion and uh, you know all the headlines that no one wanted to see, particularly if you're in the banking industry. But it was quite different as well in that it wasn't. Uh, it was they'd been identified in poor practice and poor compliance in very specific areas that the public and being a a bank for the for the people, all banks, big four particularly, uh, didn't want anything really to do with. It. They didn't want to be associated with some of the things that were being proven through the Royal Commission that um, they'd been uh, responsible for, whereas in the higher education industry or sector, it's, it's quite a different situation. They both have reputation challenge, but my view is look, the banks had a, a clear way out. You know, they had uh, industry bodies like APRA, for instance, providing them with self-assessment tools, uh, a way to restore their reputation. We worked very heavily with one of the big four banks for a number of years helping them do that. Uh, whereas the higher education industry or sector and individual universities have their own individual challenges and also sector challenge. so and, and they're quite different in the nature of those challenges.
0: Well, they certainly have a lot of sector challenges at the moment, as we've said there with the budget. I mean, there's some slight glimmers of hope that international students might get a, a Guernsey sometime in the future, but it's still looking a long way off. So. Going, leading some major changes is bound to be a major issue. And, and getting a culture that's fit for you know, the 2021 period and beyond is going to be a key part of that. And maybe we should have a listen to what Marcia had to say about one of the, the dominant issues in culture as she's experienced them and as so many women have in the issue of sexism in Australian universities. Let's, let's listen to Marcia. Indeed. Our guest today on HeadX is Marcia Devlin. Marcia is widely known as a thought leader in the areas of academic a- executive leadership, the student experience, and a particular champion of women in higher education. Um, There are not many universities in Victoria that she hasn't worked in. And until recently, she was the Senior Deputy Vice-Chancellor at Victoria University. And since then, Marcia is building um, a profile as a speaker. She serves on boards, she consults and and writes widely and has just launched a fabulous new book on sexism in Australian universities called Beating the Odds. Marcia, welcome to Headex.
2: Thank you very much, Martin, and I'm delighted to be here.
0: Great. Well, I'm delighted that you could join us too. And it's such an exciting time after you've just launched this fabulous new book. But I wonder if I can just before we get into that, um, I invite you to reflect a little bit of, uh, uh, about um, the, after such a senior, diverse and influential career that you've had leading broadly issues of teaching and learning, of culture, of strategy and, and operations at so many different institutions. Tell us a bit more about what you're currently doing and focusing on. And what's making you jump out of bed in the morning and maybe conversely, what's keeping you awake at night with your current responsibilities and and interests?
2: Yeah, sure, great question. So jumping out of bed, what what, uh, interests me and always has is the opportunities to make a difference. So at the moment, that's particularly through education and I'm very privileged at the moment to be able to be working across tertiary, secondary, primary and early childhood education. I'm on the board of the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority. Um, as well as doing some consultancy work and some other board work in the tertiary space. So that uh, that's really fabulous. Um, opportunities to make a difference through empowerment. And at the moment, as you mentioned, I'm particularly interested in women and women in leadership or women not in leadership, as I prefer to say, because there are so few of us and really trying to do something about that. Interested in opportunities to make a difference to those disadvantaged in some way. So I'm doing all of that through governance work consultancy as you mentioned and most recently writing this book what keeps me awake is the kind of corollary of that inequality in all its forms so um An ex-Catholic from West Belfast. I I was very acutely aware of inequality from a very young age, and I have dedicated my research career, particularly to um, success in teaching and learning, and more broadly for what so-called non-traditional students, students uh, who are from low SES backgrounds, students with disability, Indigenous students, uh, students in regional, rural and remote areas. Um, More recently, since I've moved out of those uh, executive roles, or for the moment anyway, um, I'm concentrating on women in leadership or women not in leadership, Um, as you know, Martin and you've read the book. Uh, 73% of Australian vice chancellors are men 76% of Australian chancellors are men and there are 86% more male than female members of the professoriate in Australia so that keeps me awake and gets me out of bed so I'm very tired because I'm not sleeping and then I'm getting up early to try and address all of these things
0: <laughs> And It's um, it's really data that should be keeping us all awake at night So you've written this brilliant new book called Beating the Odds Tell us how it came about, why you've written it and, and what you hope its impact will be on university and academic leaders in these particular times, Marcia.
2: Yeah, great. So I wrote the book because I failed to get a job with Julia Gillard. Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia, as everyone knows, um, has this wonderful um, Women's Leadership Institute at King's College in London and she set up a sister organisation at the Australian National University which is one of my alma maters. So I applied for that job. I didn't get it and uh, uh, listeners might be pleased to know a bloke didn't get that job. A, a fabulous woman got it. But in writing the application for that job i, I came to realize the, the strength of the passion i guess i had for addressing inequality that women suffer in the sector um, so that, that got me I, I started writing an article it accidentally turned into a book and i really wrote it for two reasons one was therapy for me <laughs> after being a woman in academia and in senior university leadership for the past eight years 30 years in the sector, um, and I say, I mentor a lot of women and I say the same things over and over and over again. So I started writing an article, then it sort of, I thought maybe it's a pamphlet or something a little bit longer that I could just sort of give to women so I don't have to keep repeating myself. And anyway, it turned into into a book. And and so um, the therapy for me was in writing it all down and now it's there for, you know, to share with women and with enlightened men like yourself um, to, to get those thoughts out there a little bit more widely. In terms of impact, I have very modest goals, Martin. I just wanna start a national revolution in the universities. So (laughs) I want women in universities across Australia to redirect their labor from things uh, that oppress them and hold them back and and redirect that labor towards um, things that will actually help advance their careers. In terms of impacts on leaders, (laughs) I've heard there's a few people around the sector a little bit worried about this book. about the movement then I hope it'll start, and that's great. Um, if the worry leads them then to move on from talking about this, having committees and plans and targets we never reach, hand-wringing and so forth, to actually taking action, then then that would be a great outcome as far as I'm concerned.
0: So you've called it a, a revolution and a movement. That, that suggests that there's um, going to be need to be a, a few people involved. But you've also told us that this was very much an individual sort of commitment and something that you you had to to to, to get out of yourself and and to, mm-hmm. to reflect upon from your own experiences. So, if we're going to be part of a revolution or a movement, what do you think we can all do to address these issues and? What do you particularly think the response is that's required of our current university leaders?
2: Great question. If I'm going to start a movement, I better have clear goals in that. Um, look, I think broadly speaking, everyone can do better. And I include myself in that and, and welcome you to join that thinking. I think if everyone made a little bit more of a conscious effort to observe and call out sexism when they saw it, become aware of their own behaviours. You know, I discovered to my horror, I had some very old fashioned thoughts and and, um, implicit assumptions about women when I did a test that I've put in the book uh, a link to that people can do. If everyone became a little bit more aware of their own thinking and behaviours and uh, really tried to stop being sexist, uh, if people made a comment in a meeting where they saw that a woman was interrupted before she'd uh, spoken, finished speaking, if she'd had her idea or appropriated by someone else that usually not always a man so often a, w- a woman will speak in a meeting people will behave as if they haven't heard uh, a man will say the same or a very similar thing a few minutes later and everybody uh, wants to have a party and celebrate how wonderful his idea is and lots of clapping but the the woman actually said it a few minutes ago you know calling out things like that um monitoring how long men speak for in meetings compared to how long women speak for um and comment on this or ask about it L- little things like that can actually make a huge difference so i think we all have a responsibility um to to see things to call them out and to, to make changes i'm most excited though about the women who will read this book and then put some of the strategies into play so w- One colleague who's an early reader of a draft, uh, one of the things I suggest in the book is that women become poorer at housework at home and at work so rather than doing everything that uh, women are expected to do at a 10 out of 10 level just try and lower your score a little bit down to a six or a seven and she wrote to me I'll read the what she said to me in the email I'm now cleaning the house at a six out of 10 and that has prompted my sons to start vacuuming dusting and hanging up the laundry exclamation mark I might move to a three out of 10 and see what happens you know so that's the thing I'm excited about in terms of impact if lots of women start stopped doing some of the things they're doing did them at a lower level there would be a a very um, a big ripple effect across the sector I think but men also have a very important uh, role to play the fact is when men speak people are more likely to listen than when women speak that's a very sad fact but it is a fact so men need to speak up about sexism but to do so effectively they really need to educate themselves about what life in universities for women is like some of my male friends who read this book were really shocked They, they you know said I thought I was a pretty good bloke I thought I had my finger on the pulse I had no idea that your life was like this so men need to find women who'll be honest with them about what really life is like and what really goes on for women how men behave who's considered competent who gets the leadership roles etc cetera, etc cetera, and really take some action
0: I mean as you say it's um, a lot of people that read this including a lot of men may may read it and be quite shocked to hear the views Put forward, and as as you say, I I've I've had the pleasure to to to, and the and the opportunity to have read the book myself, and it it, whilst having had some familiarity with some of the issues, there were still some lots of stories there and lots of data there that was really confronting, and I imagine that some some of the impacts on casual employment, part time work, the working from home, and the implications of that on on shared domestic responsibilities, um, and the other phenomena going on in our daily lives beyond higher education at the moment, these issues are probably becoming more difficult for women right now than they were before. Do, do you think that's the case?
2: I know that's the case. I mean, it's, it's obvious from anecdotal reports um, of most women I know, but, but I guess at a global level, the Global Gender Gap Index, which is put out by the World Economic Forum, um, reported in the 2021 report, so this year's report, they put Australia at number 50 in the Global Gender Gap Index, and that's a slip of six places in the previous 12 months. It's now the case it'll take 135.6 years to close gender inequality gap worldwide. It was only 99 years a year ago. So it's increased by 35, 36 years. Uh, That's if nothing changes. If things get worse for women, it'll be even longer. And according to that report, COVID um, caused the gender gap to widen because women left the workforce at a greater rate than men. But even for those who retained paid work, the women who retained paid work, women took on more duties in childcare, more in housework and more in elder care, increasing what the report calls the double shift of paid and unpaid work. Um, And naturally enough, this has contributed to higher levels of stress and lower productivity among women so so women in academia and I I write the book for academic women and professional women working in universities are living through the pandemic like all women worldwide. Um, The academic women are the ones teaching students who are also living through the pandemic and have additional stresses and needs. And academic women tend to have responsibility for teaching and supporting those large undergraduate cohorts where students um, are newer to higher education, have additional attention and care and feedback and support needs compared to say postgraduate students. Uh, The the stature women are concentrated at levels A and B and they have the burden of inverted commas care at at work as well as at home. Um, I think it's pretty depressing and we add to that, the budget situation, Uh, the budget came out a couple of weeks ago things are looking pretty terrible for the next couple of years. Um, I think most people know Andrew Norton, a well-known commentator in higher education. He put out a tweet that's been retweeted many times that simply said, 2022 will be ugly. So things are not about to get easier for women, which is why it's so important for them to think carefully about where they put their effort in the next while.
0: Yes, it's not a looking a pretty picture, is it? And ugly is quite a, a, a stark word to use in that those terms. And Look, your, your book, as you've described, was was partly to for you personally to get some things out there that you needed to. And it's in many ways um, addressed at individual women who are not in leadership to help them overcome the odds and beat the odds, as you've described. But I presume that the the issues and that's, that data about us adding 30 plus more years to closing gender gaps rather than shortening it is just frightening. I, I, I imagine the root causes of many of these things that we're talking about and that you write about must must intersect with the way that we develop and think about culture in our universities. And they must presumably arise from how things have been historically, but also how we're leading now and how how we intersect some of these issues of culture with broader concerns with equity, diversity. And inclusion for our staff and our students um, is that how you see it and, and and if that's the case what what do you think the priorities are for leaders and the work that they need to do in developing culture in our universities at times when let's face it pressures on finances have never been greater
2: yes yeah, so big question martin and culture how how do you uh how do you reform and, and shape that and you know one of the things that i've learned in my governance work is is culture is set from the top um from the university council but but also from the senior leadership group but it but it it can be set from the top of smaller portions of within the university look i'd say in, in essence um now's the time to choose women for leadership positions now more than ever universities need diversity of thinking in leadership and i'll just refer quickly to two studies that that are in my book Um, that I think are particularly helpful. So there's a 2016 paper by Greg Young, and, and he argues that successful leaders are those people who are able to respond to rapid change and to what the article describes as complex, wicked problems. And if the global pandemic is not a complex wicked problem, I don't know what is. Um, Young's paper claims that that uh, successful leaders will be the ones who harness modern societal attitudes to ethics and fairness and embrace collaborative leadership. I'm quoting from the paper there. Um, the paper argues that collaborative rather than competitive behavior creates more success and therefore that women with their, these are his words, superior emotional intelligence and collaborative skills a well-placed delete. He, he makes those comments based on evidence and he outlines that evidence in the paper. It's really worth a read. The paper is about business leaders, but I agree with its arguments and I think they apply to female leaders and to leadership in universities. The other study I'd refer to is... Um, Last year, 2020, um, journalist Annabelle Crabb reported on a world first study that showed a causal link, not a correlational link, but a causal link between greater gender diversity and business success. It was an Australian study, and it found that having a female CEO increased the market value of a company by 5%, and that's nearly $80 million to an average ASX 200 company, increasing the number of women in other key leadership positions besides CEO by 10% or more increased the company's market value by 6.6% or an average of 105 million. So you're talking about the financial pressures on universities at the moment. There is clear evidence that having females in leadership roles will assist with that. Universities aren't usually looking to make profits, but they do need to be financially viable, particularly at the moment. And and in the increasingly competitive, market-driven and accountable world that universities operate in, having women at at the helm and in the university leadership ranks will help performance. So that, that would be my response. Put more women in charge and things will improve.
0: Martha, you describe a number of frankly quite horrifying examples of bad practice, bad leadership and bad culture in your book. And the relative to opportunity claims of the promotion applicant being disrupted by his wife breastfeeding babies, who you wanted to nominate for Father of far the Year caught my eye most, um, I also can't go into a kitchen these days without thinking about dal and rice, but I'll leave your, write- your, your readers to discover that one for themselves. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there must be examples that you can point to from your long experience in the sector, when in contrast, leadership has been at its best, culture has been most inclusive and supportive of good student and staff experiences. And we have some examples that the rest of us might learn from as the sector looks for answers, not just more evidence of problems. Do you have some examples for us?
2: There absolutely are, and and thank you for asking this question because it's just great to have the opportunity to call some of this good practice out. So I'd like to give three examples. The first is Professor Margaret Scheel at QUT. So Margaret was appointed uh, vice chancellor, and pretty soon after she was appointed, she made a public statement that she intended QUT to become the most—I'm I, I, I'm, uh, paraphrasing—gender uh, equal. Uh, she used more eloquent language than that university in the country, and she is well on her way to doing that. It is remarkable: female vice chancellor, female chancellor. So that that probably helps. At one point, it was—I've lost track of time because you know, 2020 was lasted for about five years, but sometime in the last couple of years. Um, Margaret had an executive team team meeting uh, as vice chancellors do at the universities on a regular basis and for whatever reasons, because some people were away, some women were acting up, there were some interim appointments and she has a lot of women on her senior leadership team, the entire senior leadership team were all women that day. There were about a dozen of them and, and she had a photograph taken and she put it on Twitter. That, that was just so inspiring and so amazing. And, you know, that's just a, a symbolic sort of thing, but the things going on at QUT are really worth looking into. In the interest of time, I'll leave that example there, but I, I would commend Margaret Shield for her leadership. The other two I'd like to mention are Aboriginal women and uh, two outstanding examples of inclusive leadership and building a culture in their communities and in the universities and, and more broadly. Uh, the first is Karen Jackson, who's um, an Indigenous leader at Victoria University, an, an amazingly inspiring woman who I don't even know the words to describe. And I tried to think about it beforehand and I got all flustered. Um, she, she is quite moving in the way she is able to treat everybody as an equal, to uh, operate with grace and dignity in, in the face of, you know, quite extraordinary uh, disadvantage for Aboriginal people, uh, you know, Aboriginal deaths in custody, racism, all kinds of things that she deals with on a daily basis. Uh, very inspirational. And uh, I'm very proud and privileged to call her a friend. The other is Professor Bronwyn Fredericks, who's also in Queensland, and you might know her, Martin. Uh, Bronwyn is an amazing leader I've known for years and years and just extraordinary, again, in um, creating a culture, not only at the university she's at, but in the sector um, and in her community and in the broader community. Uh, Both Bronwyn and Karen are very inclusive, of you know non-Aboriginal people who quite frankly they must find really annoying <laughs> who you know don't understand who you know say stupid things are inadvertently racist and, and make assumptions and all kinds of things they they are just grace personified um, and Bronwyn doing all kinds of things through social media that I just think is extremely powerful um, including you know uh, living a healthy lifestyle and demonstrating and role modeling that to people taking pictures of the food she eats and calling it deadly choices and uh, you know picture of the pool that she used to swim in every morning. I'm not sure if she's still doing that, to try and provide that leadership. So Margaret, Karen and Bronwyn, I would say, are just extraordinary leaders doing, not only around gender, um, but around race and and just more broadly as well.
0: You strike me as an observer and great leader in our sector, who through a combination of your humour and own hope is calling out what is wrong. But, um, But you also strike me as someone who believes we can fix these systemic problems in culture in our universities. If, if, if I'm right in thinking that, what's your message of hope for us all, of the change you see coming about in the next five years and why it's going to be better for female ac- academics, but also better for university experiences for all over that five-year period.
2: Well, you know, it's about optimism really, isn't it? I mean, you you have to hope and you have to be positive, or but, you know, the alternative is not very attractive. I'd say, look, things are changing and they will continue to slowly improve. I was just reading this morning, I, I'm, I was born in Ireland and my home country is heading towards a 50-50 split in the gender of university presidents, when only a few years ago there were no, no female university presidents in Ireland and had never been. You know uh the huge gain uh, from uh, from quite focused work in in uh, a couple of people who really put that on their agenda and drove it forward um we're all in this together women should not be shouldering more of the burden of the boring repetitive stuff this burden should be shared between all genders and and more and more men are coming on board with that I, i'd say my message of hope is let's work together to continue to eradicate sexism in universities and together flourish it'll be good for everyone And you know, while we're at it, since I've mentioned Aboriginal women leaders, let's have a parallel focus on eradicating racism because if things are difficult for white women, that you know the challenges are multiplied for aboriginal women for women of color for asian women but look we're all humans we all, all care about other humans we all care about the future of the human race we all want a healthy planet to live on we all really want the same things to love to be loved to have good health for ourselves and our fellow humans to have a life with purpose and meaning and that means you know with equality um and so let's all work to, together towards this with conviction and passion and compassion what else is there to do man? that's that's what we've got to do
0: Seems like pretty important stuff to do, doesn't it? So, so in, in closing then, you've talked about us all doing that together. What would be your message of encouragement rather than hope to women in academia, to the male allies that need to support them, and to our university leaders ensuring that your picture of positive future
2: change comes about? All right, so the women, I'd say, don't give up. You're not alone. Things are getting better and they'll continue to get better. And now you can read my book and you've got a guide to... Sp- specifically how to make things better for yourself and for other women. Help other women collaborate because together we're stronger um, and and see and learn from uh, other leaders, especially Aboriginal female leaders. Um, You're not alone, don't give up. To the men, I'd say please help the women, being careful to do so in ways that they want to be helped. Um, Please educate yourself and when you see it, call out sexism and and know that you as a man have enormous influence and and try and use it for, for good Uh, not evil Uh, to leaders I'd say there's much you can do and you've got many options to make change part of leadership is doing difficult things you know it's not easy for me to write this book and call this out it's quite risky but it's the right thing to do so calling things out when they're not right in spite of potentially negative consequences for yourself is actually what you're there to do that's what leaders do so do the right thing when it comes to sexism and racism be on the right side of history would be my final comment Because things are going to change and you want to have been on the right side of that at the right time.
0: Well, I'm absolutely sure you're going to end up on the right side of history, Marcia. There's no doubt in my mind of that. And for coming and being so bold and courageous and bringing to our attention not only the major issue of sexism in our universities, but some pointers towards how culture can be changed through leadership and good practices to bring about a better higher higher education experience for all. We thank you very much for joining us on Headex today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that was Marcia,
1: Carl. What do you think? Wow. Well, what a change agent. You know, she's obviously on a mission and a, a serious mission at that. A lot of energy, a lot of insight, a lot of, um, you come from a very strong position and strong reputation in terms of her knowledge and, um, and personal reputation. I, I'm fascinated by what she's setting out to do and very excited about it.
0: So, so the issues that she described of how it feels to be uh, a woman trying to get on in Australian universities, are, are they the same issues that you see in other sectors? And, and if so, what have you seen other sectors do about it? Uh, it's absolutely what we've seen. I, I do think it's worse. I think it's generally
1: probably worse in the university sector. I say, I say that from a somewhat uneducated perspective, but it's generally poor. It has been poor, I should say, over the last decade in terms of diversity and um, equality at senior leaders' level across most sectors that we've had anything to do with. So tech and tech and banking more so, um, and they've really stepped up. You know, some of the things we've seen uh, organisations do now in terms of identifying talent uh, regardless of gender is is has to be the way of the future. And so there's particular tech companies we've worked with, and it's been very clear for me through the last 25, 30 years that some of the best leaders uh, are actually women for a variety of reasons, and and regardless of their individual characteristics, when I speak to uh, cultural frameworks of excellence or cultural frameworks of innovation, and those people that can drive a business particularly well, have a, a very common trait in them, and that is, and this, they can be male or female, it doesn't matter, they know how to build a community. That is the absolute essence of an innovation culture. They know how to build a strong community of care and consideration, not because it's a nice thing to do, but because it actually facilitates better, faster growth. You can provide people with high candor feedback, you can trust one another, and it's it also eliminates the one thing that actually brings culture down, which is fear. So you don't get the sense of politics and politicking and based on fear. So, look, there's a. I'm t- thoroughly thrilled about uh, a change in um, in ratio generally across all sectors, and um, I think it's well overdue in universities.
0: Yeah, I mean, we talk. We often talk about people around the, the board tables and the leadership tables of our other sectors and universities, and what the, and what that composition of people around the tables look like. It reminds me of a couple of occasions. Actually, I can remember. Um, must be 15 years ago now, the university that I was part of at the time was entering into a big partnership with the global um, mining services company Schlumberger. And we, we had a meet and greet between the executive team that I led and uh, through the HR director that was alumni of, of that university, the, the global leadership team of Schlumberger. And the focus that Schlumberger had on diversity in their leadership teams around the world to be successful in the different cultures, the different the different economies, and the different environments that they were operating in, it was absolutely crucial for them, not just because it was part of their values, but because they saw it as key to superior business performance. And I contrast that with, with a couple of... Um, a dinner and a lunch that I also had as a as a dean of engineering in 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 that university. I can remember when I just arrived in, in in into the role, I went on a benchmarking trip with my new leadership team to Melbourne to benchmark with some CSIRO um, operations down there. We were out on a be- first night before the first day dinner in a private dining room in in Ligon Street, up into a private dining room, and I can recall sort of thinking, where are we all going to sit here? I think it was still at the time where, as a new leader, everyone wanted to sit next to me, rather than pretty soon afterwards, no one wanted to sit next to me. But one of my colleagues said, why don't we sit boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl? And of course, she was the only woman in the room, and a group of 12 or 15 of us, and the irony was not lost on all of us, so an important message and then I, I contrast that with um, a more recent boardroom lunch that I was one of the big four had organized for us and there was um, a whole group of guests from higher education and other sectors with Tim Suit fommersane the race discrimination co- um, commissioner at the time. And this was a situation where we were actually sitting, boy, girl, boy, girl, around a table of 24 people. And, uh, and Tim was the only non-Anglo-Saxon um, an Australian man of great pride, but an only non-Anglo-Saxon heritage ethnic person around the table. And both those little anecdotes are demonstrations of you're not going to get superior performance in business, I don't think, or in leading our universities with a lack of diversity of culture around the table.
1: Absolutely. Look, one of the things that I have studied over my time in culture is uh, police force uh, culture. And there's a particular sort of change that took place in New Zealand police force because they were seen to be what they called old, stale and male. And I think that's, you know, and they went to a much more contemporary progressive ratio and inclusion and diversity um, policy and outlook. And they've performed incredibly well uh, since then. Uh, And my message on this, I suppose, if there is one, um, the budget sort of reconfirmed that, that the amount of the volume of change that's required from the higher education sector is enormous it's it's probably far beyond the expectations of most people working in it because it's a there's a conceptual void around what where they are at the moment and where they probably need to be it's not like a royal commission reset for a bank where yeah sure you know you you had a wrap across the knuckles and you've been fined some money but you're actually going to recover quite well there because your operating process, your model, your revenue, your value proposition is still intact. You know, universities right now are looking at an entirely new value proposition, have to be, um, run very differently culturally by a very different type of person. I'm not talking about gender by any means, by any means there. It's just that is an enormous transformation on steroids. It's not just an iterative change or a change process. You, you
0: couldn't be more right, Carl, and um, that, that's going to need a change in styles of leadership and, a, and, a, and, f- and you know dimensions of organizational culture to bring that about. And let's face it, it's going to need some out-of-box thinking. You, d- you don't get guidance on how to make the sort of changes that you're outlining there by... Just working with the the resources you've got in your current university, it's really going to need some inspiration from beyond.
1: I I agree, Martin. And I think one of the things that, that we've noticed as well with our engagements are we can very quickly tell which leaders are looking to perpetuate the current state and which leaders are prepared to step into the unknown. And it's those leaders that are prepared to step into the unknown, do so boldly and bravely and learn as they go, that are going to win here. I've seen it time and time again with tech companies. I've seen it time and time again with digital banking challenger brands. And that's what the industry is heading towards. It's heading towards we can't rest on our laurels anymore, our reputation. We now need to find a new position. And it is going to require a high degree of comfort with ambiguity.
0: Well, comfort with ambiguity is something that I've learned and been coached into seeing is often brought by having clarity on what you are trying to achieve rather than searching for that, you know, unattainable certainty. And these are times that don't give certainty, but... But clarity of thinking in innovative and, and driven by more diversity ways are certainly going to be some things that I think the sector is going to be looking for. And I think we're going to have some exciting opportunities and some new live events from HeadX to explore some of these issues a little bit further. You, you've got some more insights on that, Carl. Well, it's almost news,
1: isn't it? I mean, we've got our first HeadX live event coming up in Brisbane in a couple of months, you know, details to follow. But it's the first time that you and I will have um, stepped out publicly from behind the microphone to engage with um, Marcia, for instance, possibly, and also other
0: uh, industry leaders. Well, that, that will be great. And I'm really excited about the fact that that in the next episode of HeadX, we've got another real innovative and leading thinker on higher education policy and leadership in Lynn Bassetti from now our first new guests, our first, our first HeadX guest from North America. She's at the university of british columbia in canada
1: oh that's great i'm looking forward to uh, hearing what she has to say i've got no real perspective and understanding of the uh, higher education landscape in um, north america whatsoever
0: well that will all be in next episode but that's probably all we've got time for today carl isn't it that's my line thanks martin till next time